Um, you can make your way to Psalm 1. It feels a little weird to be saying that after we've spent a year saying, turn to Romans. But um, I'm excited about um, our fall as we're, we're in, a, in a sense, doing one series throughout um, some selected psalms that we have. And then right in the middle of it, we're going to stop and do a little, um, just about um, a little mini-series within the month of October, focusing on the, the solas of the Reformation, just kind of what was happening at that point since it's the 500-year um, anniversary, and there's five solas, and there's five weeks in October. So it just worked perfect for that. So we'll kind of bookend understanding theology with what was happening then with Psalms that really gives us the language of that theology. That, that when we look at Psalms, and that's why we've titled this Learning the Language, is because life is full of conflicts and burdens. It's sorrow, there's pain, there's excitement. And, and the Psalms express all of those as you, as you work your way through them. That it gives you a voice, it, it teaches you the language of our relationship with our Creator. And so um, that's why we're, we're focusing on this. And Psalm 1 is a perfect introduction to that series, not just because it's number one, and some of you really like that idea that we're starting in one, but next week won't be two, just so you know, you can go ahead and, and work that way. But it's, it's an introduction to the, the, the whole 150 collected psalms that we have, but it's an introduction to this series that, that really creates this idea of who we are and how we respond then to God. And so um, a, way, a way to kind of explain this, Michael Wilcox says it this way. He says that psalms express joy, awe, doubt, confidence, anger, praise. They do so with heartfelt emotion, but behind all of them is a definite theology which is clear as to what is and what is not acceptable. And so that's what our aim is as we look at these, to understand that we can have emotion. It's okay to be emotional within our relationship with God, but then also but there's a definite theology and a doctrine that, that allows us to understand what is and what is not acceptable as Christians live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to that. So if you will, follow along. We're going to read all of Psalm 1, and then um, we will get further into what um, we have today. So in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you will pray with me as we ask the Spirit to guide us in our time today. i got to just pray that as we open your word, that the two clear, distinct paths that we could possibly travel would be aware to us. God, that your spirit would draw us to you. God, that we would further understand that our righteousness is not of our own, but comes freely from your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
And so when you look at Psalm, you kind of see this bold description of two realities that, that defines the affiliation of all people, right? You can see that, that this is clearly the righteous and the wicked, and, and most of your Bibles have a heading there that says the righteous and the wicked. So it's, not, it's clear, but when you see that there's a two distinctions, or you could say there's two paths that the, the psalmist is laying out as it relates to how we live our lives. And, and when we look at this, we just want to look at both sides of that aspect and how the description of... The, the righteous person and the wicked person, and, and then see how that propels us forward to live a life devoted to Christ. And so we see that we're righteous or we're wicked. If you want to borrow from our time last year in Romans, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either righteous because of Christ's works on our behalf, or we're wicked because of the sin of Adam as our representative. And so when we look at this and we understand this language, it's this language of obedience. How are we to respond to what God has called us to? And that's what we see today, that there's the righteous person. And when we look at the beginning of this, it's interesting how it starts. He says what? Blessed is the man. And if you just look at that on one level, it's interesting because it doesn't begin with God. It begins with man. right? And so right there, some of you might already be thrown off a little bit, or some of you might think that that's perfectly normal, which we'll understand why that should seem weird to you later. But what we have to understand is this is talking about someone who has already benefited from the action of God. Blessed is the man. This is not someone who is just normal. This is someone who is God has already acted in their life. He's known by God. Therefore, he's blessed. Because if we can't say that we're blessed, if we're not known by God, if God hasn't acted on our behalf, then we wouldn't say that we're blessed. We would say that we're condemned, right? That we would say we're cast out, not blessed. But when we look at this, we have to realize that we have a flavor of representation here. That it is talking singular man, but we can see that there's also a representation or an example of what a person who has been favored by God, known by God, would display. And so there's many times throughout the Psalms we'll understand, or it's just scripture in general, where man is gender specific, talking about men, but we can also see where man is a broader sense, where it's all humanity, and that's what we have here. And so let's just look at this description of righteousness, or the righteous person that we see. What do they do? Because that's where we want to start, isn't it? Don't you, like if you're living your life, don't you always want to start with, just tell me what to do, right? Some of you like that. Some of you are are, uh, openly against just tell me what to do, but it functions well, but that's not what the psalmist gives us, right? If you look at it, he says what? Who walks not. So when we begin the description of the righteous man, we begin with the, what he ought not to do. Simply put, what we see in this is the righteous person always refuses to waver or go towards the wicked. The, the, the righteous person refuses to compromise on any level of their lifestyle. And that's where it gets interesting because we see in this first verse three different levels of compromise that, that the psalmist is describing that we can all see at times in, in life and society for sure. 
And, and so what do we see that we ought not to do? We ought not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And we look at that, well, what does that mean? And that's just basically is we're not going to take their advice, right? If you're walking in the counsel of the wicked, then you're listening to the advice that they're giving you. And, and here the psalmist is saying, no, you, you ought not to do that. And so you have to ask yourself, do you listen to the advice of the wicked, of the sinners, of a culture that's against the gospel before you would listen to God's truth? Because that's what he's saying, that we ought not to listen to that. And I can think of really three ways that we see this prevalent in the church, much less the culture. One is that we have a man-centered theology dominating a majority of churches. Because that's what culture teaches, right? Culture says, do what's best for you, and everything's okay. And so we've adapted that language within the church, and we've created this man-centered theology within our mission. And so we go on mission not to benefit others, but to say, look what we've done. Or we go on mission because it somehow benefits us. It's a man-centered theology, and that is advice that is not coming from Scripture or gospel-centric in any way. We're not the hero of our story, if we're honest. We're the one that screws it up. Right? We're the one that keeps falling. Every time we get picked up, we fall again. But yet, culture and society, and increasingly the church, says that you're the sinner, you're the hero. Do what's best for you, because that's what God would want. But God doesn't want our best. He wants glory to him by us submitting to him. It's not our best in that sense. It's not our best now. It's our best for him because he's given us everything. So we have a man-centered theology that's invaded the culture, but we also have a man-centered purpose that says what you have now is the ultimate of your existence. That we have this idea that we now can achieve the best and brightest that we'll ever achieve. And that's forgetting the fact that when we're in Christ, we're with him in glory that far outweighs this world. That's why we see in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning for the redemption. So if there's creation's groaning for redemption and we're seeking that redemption that he returns, then that is an awareness that there's something greater, that, that our purpose now is not what we should be focused on as far as getting what we can get. And that's why the prosperity gospel is such a detriment to people's salvation. Because it's saying, do everything now, because this is what we have to look forward to. But the gospel says, look towards him. Because that's it. That's why the, the, the Bible, the second to last verse of the Bible says, come Lord Jesus, right? Come quickly. Like come back because there's something greater than a man-centered purpose that so often we listen to the advice of the wicked, even those who are clothed and disguised within the church. And then ultimately we have a man-centered worship, right? We worship people. We worship ourselves, we place people up on pedestals, and we worship them, and that's nothing but man-centered idolatry. But it's so prevalent in the church. If you just look at social media and how much we put on pastors and leaders that are far gifted beyond anything that we could have, and we place them up and we worship them, 
instead of the message that they preach. And I'll tell you, that's one of the most wonderful things that I've learned from other pastors within our Acts 29 network is we have some amazingly gifted men of God that have tremendous platforms that seek nothing for themselves. And, and, and you get that when you realize who they are. Just take, if you, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you can take Matt Chandler, president, you should probably know. He doesn't seek anything for himself. In fact, he, he goes against that. In the conversations that I've had with him, he's focused on gospel mission, not on what can I do. And he interacts and he walks, not as he's any different than anyone else. Yet we have a culture that would say, let's go worship him because he's so gifted. How about we worship the one that gifted him, who's far greater? And when we understand that, we'll realize that we're not then listening to the counsel of the wicked. We're not taking their advice. We need to stop listening to that advice. And and just realize that when we walk in that advice... We're supporting that mission. But also, what does it go? It says what? Not only that we should walk in the council of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. And so it goes to another level, right? You can, you can walk with them, but then you can stand with them. This is a, a stronger language of support for the wicked. It's not that you've, you, you, you still listen, but now you've gone from listening and hearing their advice, taking in their advice, to now supporting the movement that they're in. So in a sense, you're enabling their sin by standing with them. And here the psalmist is reminding us that that we who are righteous because of Christ's work on our behalf should not support sin, should not support or stand with them. And so if, that's a, if it's an idea that's coming from outside the church on how the church should look because of a culture that says that everyone should be equal, which, yes, that's a gospel implication, but it doesn't mean that you just do whatever and we're all equal. We have to stop supporting a sinful understanding of how we are to be the church because we're enabling and supporting the wicked's work within us. And then ultimately, the, the worst, the far gone position we have is that we should not sit in the seat of scoffers. These are those who are, that's our culture, right? We have a culture surrounding us of scoffers saying that you're out of date, you're out of touch, that you're not actually for all people. You're not for others because you hold to a standard. And what happens here is you're no longer supporting, but you've adopted that mentality if you're sitting in the sea of scoffers. That you're, you're there. You've planted yourself in there. And, and a way that I thought to, to kind of to look at this was the idea that if you just look at a protest, right? Take Charlottesville that happened. If you, you see all the pictures. We have video everywhere because now people video everything instead of stopping stuff. I don't understand that. Right? Like, we used to try to stop things. Like, now it's like we try to get people to fight so that we can video it. Right? And so you, we've got plenty of evidence then because we have plenty of video. And you'll notice that there's all three of these levels of support within the protests, right? Within the actions. You have people that are just walking along. Like, they're, they're not really there. Maybe they didn't even come prepared, but they've joined in. They're walking. They're listening to, the, to, the, to what's being said, and they're saying, all right, I can go with that. I understand that. And so they're just walking along. 
They're not really invested. They didn't plan for it, but they, they're there. And then what happens then is eventually, after they've listened to this vice enough, then they get into it, and now they're supporting it. They're standing with them. They're not necessarily the ones saying everything, but you see that person that's standing there. Maybe they were given their own tiki torch, and now they hold it high. They're supporting it. But it's not just, oh, I showed up. Now they're invested. And then you ultimately see those people that have gone far beyond supporting, and they're now advocating the same thing. They're leading the charge. That's exactly what the psalmist is warning us here, that a blessed man, that a righteous person understands that these levels are always constantly an attack on our soul. That as we're driven to sin, that so easily do we become listening to the advice of a wicked culture. That we begin supporting it because it sounds right, but it's not necessarily right. But we support that and we, because that's a little better than someone else. And then ultimately, we've taken completely captive that advice that we've been given. And now we're sitting with it. We're advocating it. We're pushing it out as our own. And if we're not careful and if we're not in community and if we're not honest with ourselves, we then become a beacon for a culture that's completely against the gospel. Because we haven't allowed ourselves to be strong. And so if you want to kind of rate yourself on this... Ask yourself, what bothers you with our culture? What, what bothers you about our culture? What bothers you about the entertainment and the media that we're fed continually? Because if it's increasingly less, then you're increasingly finding yourself, if you're not careful, that your heart is slowly being drawn away. And that eventually you'll defend sin because it's okay. Okay because they don't really mean it that way. You see that all the time. I don't know if you um, have, there's, there's a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He wrote an article a couple weeks ago about um, how he doesn't understand how Christians can watch Game of Thrones. And what's interesting is because then you saw what his article was saying, and then you saw a ton of Christians then countering against him because it's good art. And the point wasn't that it was good art. The point was that it's good art that's masking sinful desires that we would never allow within the church that we're going to support the church. That's exactly what the psalmist is warning us about, is that you then have Christians defending the ability to watch a show that's filled with sex and violence. That's not, that's not a gospel awareness, yet we've come to the point, and they've gotten to the point where they're not only supporting or listening to the advice, they're now defending that. They're now saying, I can watch it, it's okay, it doesn't bother me. And I would say it doesn't bother you because it's already bothered you. It's already affected you. It's already consumed you so much that you now can defend it. And those people are not seeking the Lord because that's how we get away from it. Look at verse 2. Because there's the antidote, if you will, of that lifestyle, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. So if we want to see ourselves not drawn to the wicked, we seek the Lord, we delight in his law, we delight in his word, in his truth. And so what you see in there is that God's truth then is enslaving us by devoting ourselves to it, but it also at the same time frees us. 
Because we're seeking the Lord, we're delighting in his law. We're finding joy in God's word that the culture says is restrictive. We say is freeing. And not only do we delight in it, we meditate. We continually seek the Lord. We go deeper and we go deeper and we meditate. We constantly are in the word because that gives us the ability to withstand the attacks that we receive every day when we turn on our phones or our TV or just talk to someone at work. But not only are we to seek the Lord, but we're also to bear fruit if you keep going. Verse 3, it's what? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. So not only is the righteous person one who seeks the Lord, delights in the law, delights in God's word, but meditates on it continually deeper and deeper, we realize that that then is a life that produces fruit because we're rooted in the stream of water that is God's word. And I love that picture of a a tree planted by water because it's firm. It's always going to keep its life source there and it's going to produce fruit. And so then we have to ask ourselves, if we're seeking the Lord or we feel like we are, are we producing fruit? Because a tree by a stream that's continually being watered and fueled will produce its fruit in season. And, And if I admit to you now, I used to have this understanding that we're that we produce fruit in our life and then it's over. But I think the better picture of that and a better understanding of that, because I use that in a fearful way, like, am I not doing enough now? Like, I don't feel like I'm producing fruit. And then, so what's going on? But what we have to understand, if you look at trees, and, and growing up we had these peach trees by our house. Granted, it was West Texas, so it wasn't by a stream. So that's, but that's the best I've got, right? Like it wasn't, there wasn't water by a stream, but it was a tree that produced fruit every year in its season. And so there was this cycle within the life. And I think that's a better understanding of how the righteous person lives is that we have moments where we're seeking the Lord. We're diving deeper into his word. We're meditating on his word. And then that's going to produce another season of fruit. And that fruit then, when we see that, it drives us back into the word to understand him more. And then the cycle happens again continually throughout our lives. We don't produce fruit once. We produce fruit in every new season of growth that we have as we sustain ourselves with the truth of God's word. Because we're sustained in a healthy lifestyle, which is what we understand spiritually, as it says, its leaf does not wither. There's a sustained health within the life of a righteous person who delights in the law of God and meditates on it day and night. And then that leads us to understand our responsibilities within the church. And the way we understand that then is we ask ourselves, are we a producer or are we a consumer? Because far too many people in churches today are simply consumers. You come to get something out of it and you give nothing. You produce no fruit in your life. And then when something happens in your life, it's the church's fault whom you're just consuming off of more and more. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to help each other, but it means that our desire as the body of Christ is to produce fruit within the body as we go out on mission, as we all work together individually and corporately to expand God's kingdom for his glory. And so if we're just simply consumers, 
the church is irrelevant in your life. And I've had many of conversations with people that think the, the church is outdated or the church is worthless. And, and to me, that's a culture saying that this institution is wrong because God ordained and set up the church. And most of the time, those people that think the church is irrelevant have never given anything truly back. They've given back in a selfish desire. It's like the back door in. Right? You're, you're going to give something, but the whole point is I'm going to be. You have friends that are that way, right? You have friends that are that They'll come over to your house to hang out, but really it was to get something else, right? We do that, right? We, we use people for our own advantage, not throwing it out there openly, but subversively we come into this idea, and that's how so many people treat the church because we're simply consumers. Our culture is a consumeristic society, and sadly we've taken that to the church. But if we're going to be fruitful, we have to produce through an overflow of God's word and truth in our lives in every season of growth that we have. And that means there's going to be times where someone else's fruit is going to be through ministering to you. And then at some level, you're going to be ministering to someone else. You're producing fruit and we're praying. So how do you develop that? And then we'll move on to the wicked is you're in community. It's hard to be a consumer when you're in real community with other people because they know you. And the more time you spend with someone, you actually know them and you can finish their sentences, you know their thoughts, you know what's happening in their lives. And so if you are in community, there's a good chance you're going to be pushed deeper into the word and you're going to become a producer, not a consumer. You planted deeper and developed roots, roots in community, and then also through Bible study. Like, how many times do you actually study the Word? And that doesn't count reading a verse that someone shared on Facebook, right? Because now that they put the little color backgrounds, it makes it a lot better, right? And then you can like it, and you do all this fun. That's not studying the Word. That's just listening to the advice of someone else that throws a random verse that says, this is what your life's going to look like until you look at the context of where they pulled that from, and it's not meaning anything like they say. So you study the word, you open it, you delight on his law day and night, you meditate on it, and then ultimately you pray. You pray. We have to be people of prayer. If we're going to be a righteous person that sits not with the scoffers nor supports and stands with the sinners or listens to the counsel of the wicked, we have to be people of prayer. We have to be marked by prayer in our lives, not to get something, but as an overflow and a fellowship with God. And then ultimately we see the contrast, right? Look at the wicked here as we finish up. Um, the, the wicked, what? They're not so, right? We see an exact polar opposite. They're not so what? But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And so when we look at this, we see who the righteous is. It's someone that's seeking the Lord, delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on the law. We're doing all of this. We're resisting the cultural influence within the church, and we're standing strong on the gospel. And then we see that the wicked are what? They're weak and they're worthless. That's what the psalmist is. They're like chaff. They're worthless and they're weak. And what happens, though, is when you hear me say that, if you're churched in the sense of you just think, oh, we're supposed to love those people, how can you call them weak and worthless? 
I'm not talking about mission. I'm talking about a description of someone who is outside of Christ. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's not saying that there's no hope for them unless God intervenes. He's saying that they're weak and worthless outside if they remain in that. We so too often jump to mission to seem relevant instead of looking at what the description the psalmist is saying. They're saying that someone is weak and they're worthless. That's what the wicked are compared to the righteous. They're cast out. They're trampled underfoot. They don't delight in the truth. They have no roots. They're blown around by the wind of culture. And there's so many people within our church that that description would fit far more than the description of the righteous person that he just gave us. They're blown by culture. They go wherever because they are not planted and rooted to produce fruit. And then it gets worse. If you look at verse 5, what? They will not stand in judgment. Like, so when the judgment happens, it's not going to go favorably for them, right? Like, there's, they have no leg to stand on. There's nothing for them to stand on. That they can't do that. They will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So they're not going to be included within the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because they're wicked. Because they're chaff that are blown away. They're not going to stand well in judgment, and they're not going to be in the congregation of sinners, which that is talking big picture, but we can also reduce that down into the, the church these days. And then we can understand that if we're not preaching the true gospel, then sinners might find some comfortable within our congregation, and that leads them where? To hell. Like, so people who are in their sin should feel a little uncomfortable when they hear the gospel because the gospel says there's nothing that you can do because of that, yet you stand condemned. And then it points them to Jesus. They're not in the congregation. They're apart from God's Holy Spirit working in their hearts to renew them. They stand as chaff that's blown away, as the grain, which is the value falls to the ground and is kept. They push against gospel absolutes, and that's what the wicked will always look like. That's how, if we understand the gospel, we'll identify those people. Not to call them out, but to preach the gospel to them. To tell them that we were once like them. Right? That, that there's not a person here that can say, I'm righteous in this because of what I've done. And so it points us to mission. That points us to understand that these people, those who are wicked, by default are outside. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And so therefore, we should go to them, preach the gospel, not of arrogance, but as a humility that's driven us to understand that there's nothing that we did to gain anything that we've received. And so it points us to Christ. And so when we look at the ending of this and we kind of finish our time today, we just have to realize that people are either known or they perish. If you look at verse 6, for the Lord knows the way, he knows the way of righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. It comes to an end, it finishes. So we're either known or we perish. And how we relate to Christ determines the reality of that association. And so if you find yourself today and you've never submitted your life to Christ, you submit and you repent 
of your sin, and you respond in faith and baptism because of what he's done for you. Because that's the only way then to deliver yourself is to let go of yourself and allow his blood to cover you, to atone for your sins. And your response is baptism and faith. But if you've already submitted your life, if you've already heard the gospel, you've recognized it, and you see yourself falling away, that, that on those three levels that you can, you can see that maybe you're listening to the advice or you're supporting it, or maybe you've just completely let it go in some places, that, that your response then is to repent of that and then respond in faith. That's why Luther said the, the life of a believer is repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, continually, right? We repent of our sin and our selfishness, and then we respond in faith that he can keep us. And so that's the two responses we have. We repent, and then we respond in faith or baptism, and then if we're already in Christ, we already understand that, then you repent and you respond in faith, Those are the ways that we have. And, and so if we're talking at two paths here, if we're looking at this, that there's, there's two ways in this one life that we've been given, this is where the paths diverge. You're either known and you respond and repent of your sin and you submit your life to Christ continually every day throughout life, or you are in sin and you don't realize it and you continue to diverge from him. It's the only option. There's only two ways. There's the righteous way, and then there's the wicked way. And we have to watch ourselves to know that one day we will give an account. And the only way that we can stand in that judgment is to we stand in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that we who have seen the beauty of your son, God, would watch our hearts. God, that we would seek you continually, daily. God, that we would be people that would be marked by a delight of your law. That we would be so consumed and meditate on your truth that when we open our mouths, it's your word. God, that we would be people that are described as people who bleed Bible. God, I just pray that as we understand that so often the wicked don't understand who they are, God, I pray that we'd be firm in what you've called us to live, but gracious in our preaching of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.